Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio, it's time for Family Business Radio. Showcasing outstanding family businesses and the advisors who assist them. Good afternoon. You are listening to another episode of Family Business Radio. I am your host, Anthony Chen. Today, we're going to be highlighting four amazing guests in terms of their story of what got them started and what makes them unique. So kind of kicking us off the show, we have Sylvia Raisman with Purity Patient Advocates, LLC. Welcome to the show, Sylvia. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you. So uh, for our listeners, uh, for a quick little disclaimer, she is not a physician, so don't take uh, everything from here as medical advice, but she is a patient advocate for our listeners who are kind of listening to the term patient advocate for the first time. What does that mean? So as an independent patient advocate, um, I help my clients navigate our complex healthcare system. Um, And I bridge the gap. So in many cases, when an individual goes to their doctor's office, let's say their primary care doctor, um, we all know we have a limited amount of time and it's getting shorter and shorter. So if you are a complex case, um, or even if you're not complex, um, doesn't matter if you're 10, 40, or 60, um, everyone needs an advocate because, again, you have a limited amount of time, and, if you, and many people are being misdiagnosed because of the fact that, that those, time constraints exi- those time constraints exist. So I know uh, for many of our listeners, uh, when you're talking about having less time with the physician, I mean, we used to go from an hour now to like 10 minutes, if even. Uh, so kind of share with us, what does it look like uh, when you're working uh, with a client? So um, I work with, uh, my niche is working with women who are invisibly ill, but I also work with seniors, um, or let's say you have an adult child and they have a, a parent or a loved one. Um, he needs help navigating the healthcare system. So if it's someone who's complex, uh, in that case, I actually have an in-depth uh, assessment that I use with that client. That's a critical part of my process because they've run from doctor to doctor and they're not getting answers. Mm-hmm. They basically, you know, maybe they've received multiple diagnosis or a diagnosis that they are questioning. Um, so it might be that we start off with that in-depth assessment with someone who is complex in order to come up with a plan of action for my client who's been very frustrated and scared and they need answers and they want answers. They're tired of being ignored, dismissed, and in some cases even gaslighted. Mm. So kind of share with what you mentioned about invisibly ill. What does that mean for our listeners? So we have millions of people and in particular women who have an invisible illness and it might range from an autoimmune condition such as lupus, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and it, there's a long list of illnesses that are visible. Could be inflammatory bowel disease, um, and so in a lot of cases, uh, these individuals may not have gotten to the root cause of their problem. So they may be on a medication. In some cases, the medication might be working, but in other cases, it might be that they're not seeing relief with their medication. And so, uh, in, the, in our conventional healthcare system is set up to look at the symptoms of a patient and treat them you know, with a prescription where in a lot of cases there's a root cause that has not been uncovered. So someone who's visibly ill may look great on the outside, but may feel horrible on the inside and it affects their quality of life. And kind of Cheryl, you also brought up another term, um, gaslit. What does that mean for the patient? Like how would they be able to tell? So, uh, Gas gaslighting was actually the number one term that in, in 2022 last year. It was all over the news in the New York Times. And so, again, in not every case, but in a lot of cases, yeah, when you have a, a woman in particular who might go to their doctor and they have legitimate symptoms and the doctor makes them feel like it's all in their head, that they're crazy. You know, there was an old movie, I, I think it was back in the 40s, called Gaslight. And that's what it was, basically trying to make that person feel like it's them, they're all crazy. Mm-hmm. You know? So uh, I've heard that you know, from other women in the past that has happened to them. And, you know, it's, and again, that's another reason to retain a knowledgeable patient advocate to help you bridge that gap because I, I, I know it's not in their head. It's, there's legitimate symptoms in most cases. And I know kind of, of a story. Can I share with us the, the audience, like what got you down this path to become a patient advocate for others? So I actually advocated for both my parents, but then I actually became what I call an accidental advocate because I became ill 
uh, invisibly ill in 2006 when I was living in the Tampa Bay area. And I knew something was terribly wrong. And I started going to my in, you know, in network conventional physicians, mm-hmm. in my, you know, PPO. And they just started handing me here, you know, here's a sleeping pill. Here's a pill for restless legs. And I knew, you know, something was horribly wrong, mm-hmm. horribly wrong. So after seeing uh, over 20 physicians, probably about 23 to 25 physicians in two states, including Florida and Georgia, um, I ended up being diagnosed. Actually, I self-diagnosed with Lyme disease, but it was through a highly specialized test that I actually requested from a physician in the Tampa Bay area. And um, he was gracious enough to actually run the test for me. I brought him a kit um, and then... I was given uh, a verbal that I was negative on this specialized panel mm. and it was, uh, it was for Lyme disease. And so I actually called him about three weeks later after I received a hard copy of the test results that I had requested. And once I reviewed those test results, I realized that I was probably positive for Lyme disease. And I called the lab company in California and spoke to the owner who then confirmed, he said, yes, you are positive for Lyme disease. So I ended up calling the physician back Mm -hmm. to let him know about three weeks later. So, yeah, and you're thinking, why? How could that happen, right? And Mm -hmm. it was very scary. I say scary, it was alarming. But at the end of the day, it was because this physician had never run this test before. He wasn't knowledgeable on it. And so um, I wanted him to know. I wasn't there to try to attack him. Mm -hmm. I was there to let him know, hey, I want you to know I'm positive. So that's, that took five years and over, you know, like I said, 23 to 25 doctors and this shouldn't be happening to people. And so that's where my start of my passion, that's where my passion started for Mm. patient advocacy. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, particularly going through this journey of just five years, or as you mentioned, kind of gaslit, like, oh, it's all in your head, but you know, something's a little off. It wasn't just something that just happened overnight. You decide, oh yeah, I'm going to feel sick today. Right. And I think in the case of the majority of these physicians, I think there's just a tremendous lack of education on Lyme disease. Mm. Um, And in particular in the South, where a lot of the physicians are taught that Lyme doesn't exist in the South, but is very much alive and well. And then we have faulty testing, which is, which is a major issue. Mm. So the average patient, if they're, if they even decide to test them for Lyme, the conventional testing is 50% false negative. So that in itself is just, you know, one little example of what can happen in the healthcare system. Now, for those who who might be a little more um, educated or informed in the healthcare world, can, can you share with what, what's the difference between you being an independent patient advocate versus someone that's already there in the hospital system as a hospital patient advocate? Absolutely, Anthony. So within our hospital systems, we have patient advocates, and it is a service that is provided to patients in the hospital, and it's limited in scope. Um, but unfortunately, as a patient advocate in the hospital, th- these are employees of the hospital system. They are you know, on the payroll, um, and their job ultimately is to protect the hospital and report to the risk management department because obviously safety is an issue. We don't want anybody falling, getting hurt. We don't want any lawsuits. And that's, I I get that. But at the same time, it's not looking out for the best interest of the patient. So as an independent advocate, that is my role is to look out for the best interest of my client. I don't report to an insurance company. I don't report to a risk management department. So my allegiance is 100% to my client. And for our listeners that are listening for the first time, they're wondering, oh, maybe it's not just in my head. How do they reach out to you and have someone advocate for their voice? Absolutely. So they can reach me um, either at my email, which is Sylvia, which is S-Y-L-V-I-A, at Purity Patient, like a patient in the doctor's office, advocates with an S on the end, dot com, or they can call me at 470-670-7667. Or they can find me on Facebook. I'm at Purity Patient Advocates, LLC. And I'm on Instagram, which is at Purity Patient Advocates. And my website is puritypatientadvocates.com. All right. Thank you, Sylvia. All right. Our next guest, we have Leroy Height with Cutting Edge Firewood. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So kind of share with your story of like what brought up the, the whole idea of having a firewood or, or luxury custom firewood company. Yes, sir. So 
it definitely takes uh, some explanation to explain what a luxury firewood or luxury cooking wood company is. Um, it's definitely a lifestyle um, e-commerce business, but uh, um, a fire is like a beautiful sunset. There is no one on earth that um, dislikes a beautiful fire. You can take a 95-year-old man from Ethiopia or a three-year-old girl from Georgia. They will both sit in front of a fire and enjoy it. It's universal, it's primal, and it's unifying. And at the end of a um, stressful day, I can take a whiskey, sit in front of a fire, and my stress level goes down. I think deep thoughts. My wife can come out, and all of a sudden, the mood changes, and it's romantic, um, my three daughters can come out with s'more and make s'mores and memories they will literally have for a lifetime. And teenagers will put their phones down and actually talk to their parents around a fire. And it can be at the center of a wedding party. And then I also make incredible food with our cooking wood from steak to barbecue to pizzas. And the flavor is just incredible with the cooking wood. And all of that is on one side. I love the experience aspect. I love bringing people together and I love the difference it makes. Um, on the other side, before cutting edge firewood got into the industry, the industry standard was wood would sit outside for 12 months, rot, literally have mushrooms growing out of it. And the business strategy, the branding, the customer service, and the overall customer experience match that product quality of rotting wood. Um, before cutting edge firewood, um, there wasn't a Yeti. There was an apple of firewood. Um, and I love that we've been able to go in and start from scratch and kind of recreate everything um, that we do. And so I love both those aspects of it. Now, as you're kind of growing this, as you say, either the apple or the Yeti yep. of firewood, like what, what are some of the, the big challenges? Because when people are thinking of firewood, kind of the elephant room. Oh, I'll just get it from a stack at Home Depot or Walmart. Like what, what makes cutting edge unique? Yeah. So it's, there's three things that make up the customer experience. It is the product quality, of course, customer service and the branding. Um, quality, like I said, uh, the, um, industry standard was it would sit outside and rot. So, um, industry standard has been horrible. And so we've been able to come in and really elevate um, the product quality. And that is instead of letting it sit outside, get infested with bugs and mold and mildew, when it's fresh, it goes into an oven and we dry it out completely. And then we store it inside. It is every single piece is hand picked and hand stacked, um, either in our pet protected rack or it goes into one of our boxes and then it comes with everything that you need in order to enjoy the fire. So it has the fire starters, the matches and everything. The second part is the customer service. When you call us, we're very um, reactive. Everybody that works at cutting edge firewood is trained so we can answer your questions about cooking with wood or starting a fire and, um, Customer service, of course, is very important for the customer experience. The third part is that branding is we have an elevated lifestyle brand. And a lot of people, they might not quite get that immediately. But if you think, um, why do people like the um, Mercedes emblem on the front of that car? Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the reasons that they buy the car. And it's like Louis Vuitton. How many times does the Louis Vuitton logo need to be on that handbag? The answer is yes, all over it. Um and so all those things make up the customer experiences, which is what we're obsessive about. Now, for, for the naive or ignorant here coming looking in, it looks like you have two really unique segments. One is kind of the, that traditional firewood experience, being able to, or, or, or listeners coming in and like, oh, you mean you can get my teenage off the phone and talk to me? And then the other side is for our uh, more culinary uh, literate, where they may have looking for a specific, I would say, wood uh, or, or cooking um, fuel. Can you kind of explain to me how perhaps, is there a difference in how you would process or the kind of wood that you would pick for each of those roles? Um, yes and no. They're actually... The, our, we get this question a lot. Our cooking wood and our firewood, for the most part, is the same raw material, and it goes through a similar process um, for the f for both the firewood and for the cooking wood. It really you just want what will fill the space. 
Um, so what you're using determines on how big. So if you have a huge fireplace, you probably want to use our 30 inch firewood. If you have a pretty big fireplace, you probably want to use our 24 inch. If you have a medium to small fireplace or a fire pit, you want to use our 16 inch. Same thing for the cooking wood. If you have a small big green egg and you're going to be using, um, you probably want to use the chunks to mm. smoke or grill with. Um, if you have a big, huge trailer smoker, um, that can hold huge logs, you would cook with the 16 inch. And then with our pizza wood, we have little six inch pieces for like an uni portable and other portable pizza ovens mm-hmm. all the way up till we have our full size pizza. Um, wood for somebody that has a huge, um, commercial size pizza oven in their backyard. Um, and for the firewood, um, yeah, everybody enjoys that. Um, although even with the, uh, um, I've heard, uh, somebody say that, um, people that like to barbecue and it's true for people that like to cook pizzas that one of their favorite things about it is the open fire that they watch while they're cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the food is definitely the icing on the cake. Nice, nice. So how do you see what other factors that are going to be driving the growth of your company for the next three to five years? I think ultimately it's because we're the first mover and people love the experience of the fire. And so as we, our brand awareness is growing, it brings in new customers naturally. And then we also have a whole lot of uh, um, customer referrals because people talk about us. Um, And we, we do market in a way that helps that grow. We uh, are known really well. And in, especially inside Atlanta, but uh, um, other places as well for our yard signs that we put up around town. And that gets people talking about us. And then we have our patent protected racks that um, we can, we, when you order, we bring the rack, we put it wherever you want it. And then when you reorder, we take the empty rack and replace it with a full one. And that rack comes with a canvas cover that has our logo on it. Mm-hmm. And so it's sitting right beside the fireplace or right by the fire pit. And so people talk about it. Mm-hmm. So then it kind of leads to your next question for, for those who are new or haven't even explored down this path. Uh, you mentioned of other poor quality or the way they were treated or not treated at all, where they just kind of mm-hmm. sit out there and, and rot and mildew and all that. Yep. So the wood that you're bringing in, does the customer need to be concerned about that? Or is it treated to the point where it can stay there for any X amount of time. Yeah. So our, ours, because it's treated can stay inside indefinitely. Mm -hmm. It's in a fireplace or inside it, it's completely safe. Um, and really that like comes to the advantages is it, it burns hotter, it burns longer. It starts easier because of how we treat it It has no bugs, mold or mildew. Mm -hmm. It's safer. There's less smoke. It burns hotter. Um, there's a whole bunch of other benefits, but yeah, bring it inside. It's completely safe. Whereas, um, if you have wood sitting outside um, and seasoning and rotting and you bring it inside, there is a decent chance that it's going to have bugs in it. Mm-hmm. So, so, so for the missus that are concerned about <laughs> the husband bringing in the bugs in the home, they don't have to worry about that. That's at least that one barrier <laughs> that's out the window. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, then for those who are kind of listening for the first time and finding out, oh, this is actually a unique luxury firewood experience, um, how can they reach you and, and find you? The best way is our website, cuttingedgefirewood.com. Great. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Next, we have Stephen Lustig uh, with Low Medical, who sits on as a board of director. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much, Anthony. Pleasure to be here. Great. So kind of share with us uh, a little story of yours and what got you into logistics and now kind of transforming into sitting as a board of uh, director for a family business. Great. Thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, so I my career has been in uh, various areas of operations, whether it's new product introduction, supply chain, uh, quality, uh, manufacturing, and logistics, and uh, mixed uh, engineering education with an MBA to kind of support that. Mm-hmm. And I've enjoyed the mix of those different roles. Um, and in the course of that, I've enjoyed being on the executive committee at the company I'm working with uh, now. At, I'm vice president of global supply chain at East West Manufacturing here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also enjoyed being um, as a member of the Vistage uh, Executive Network Group, which builds itself as a personal board of directors, and also was serving on a, a nonprofit board, a uh, small nonprofit uh, called uh, NCEF that supports uh, 
uh, low-income families to send their children to family uh, to, to school in the country of Nepal, which mm-hmm. has one of the lower uh, average incomes in the in the uh, world. So, um, so through that, I realized those activities. I realized that I, I enjoyed this type of a role, and started uh, looking to see how I could help companies uh, further. And that's how I came across uh, through the Private Directors Association, Low Medical, looking for that help. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, uh, you know, about a year and a half in now, helping them on their board of directors, and and also recently joining um, the board of directors for nonprofit uh, Atlanta Technology Angels, which is uh, you know member member run member supported angel investing group here in Atlanta, focused on technology. Mm-hmm. So through those experiences, I, I've kind of uh, uh, learned that I enjoyed that. And, you know, happy to see the experiences at Lowe, working with the fellow board members uh, and seeing the benefit to the company, being able to uh, address, you know, and help them with the right questions or the right guidance, both in general business areas, as well as the opportunity at the CEO's request to uh, mentor their supply chain director, which means not me being supply chain person, but me helping her to do her job while she's doing executing. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess that kind of leads to the next question is, is, since you love logistics so much, but maybe not the day-to-day, is that kind of why, out of selfish reasons, you're like, eh, I want to <laughs> keep my toe in the field and give the pass a torch to the next generation, kind of what you're doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way of looking at it. I, I, I enjoy the supply chain operations work. I think it's very interesting to help you know a product come into play, whether it's the manufacturing aspect or the, you know, the supply chain, if you don't get the parts to the factory, the factory doesn't have anything to build. Mm. If you don't get the finished product to our warehouse or to our customer, doesn't really help the customer. So being part of that product realization process from new product introduction on is very interesting. But I, I, I have a you know, great interest in being able to share and, and, and expand and help, help that. So I've enjoyed that mentoring. I've always enjoyed mentoring you know, people either through Georgia Tech's uh, Mentor Jackets program, uh, a while ago, ASME, American Society for Mechanical Engineering's mentoring program, or informally with friends. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is another great opportunity because the supply chain director there is really, really very good, very energetic, and very, um, very able to kind of run with things. And she'll, she'll ask my guidance when she needs to. She's not asking me to do things. She, we both know that role. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the board role is uh, typically described as uh, nose in, fingers out you know, know what's going on, ask what's going on, but it's not your job to do that. Uh, and you don't want to interfere with that role itself. Mm-hmm. So then can I share uh, for our listeners that are, they may be exploring or they're kind of growing to a size where they may need to bring in an independent board advisor. Like what would, advice would you give them? Like what signs or metrics would they hit and say, okay, we, we need to bring an independent outside look in. Yeah, that's, there's, a, I guess, a variety of different reasons you might want to do that. And, you know, one of them would be growth, whether it's interest in further organic growth or through acquisitions, uh, mergers, and all sorts of, you know, that sort of uh, variety. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with risks, you know, unforeseen risks, um, succession planning. You know, uh, people don't like to think so much about that. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Which it could be a bad thing. It could be just a good thing like retiring. But what's the plan for the future of the business, especially for a family-owned business? You want to pass along to the next generation, either directly with them as working there or at least financially. And how do you ensure that? How do you, how do, you do that? So whether it's how do you develop the right strategies and in, in enhancing or moving your strategies, all those might be trigger points uh, as a company grows where – the uh, independent board of directors really help you with the different experiences that they have. Mm. So then that leads into the next kind of big question is, so the listeners are coming in and all right, well, maybe I'm growing to the point where I would need a board of director. How would they make a decision of, okay, what professional background of a board of director I need to go out and search first? Because it sounds like you're on the logistics side of things. And I imagine there's other professionals from all fields of life. How do they make that first, I guess, approach? Yeah. And so in my case, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ability to help. And I would call it a product, product realization, product development, anywhere from the engineering through the uh, manufacturing, through the supply chain and the logistics aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think we want to be board directors solely in that, as, in that role. 
uh, hopefully they are and they are able to provide a more uh, you know general experience. I in, you know at this company have been able to provide uh, guidance on risk mitigation, succession planning, um, strategy prioritization, and things like that. So you're looking for somebody who you know uh, I guess they describe it now as a T. You have a strong you know the the vertical part of the T. You have a strong knowledge in an area, but you also have the top of the T, which is um, you know, a broad knowledge area from business experience that you can um, share and help people grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're looking with people for people who can do that sort of thing. And it's not necessarily people who are in your industry. In our case of this board, there's three independent directors. Only one of the three are in the industry and the company seems quite happy with the benefit um, they're getting from the two of us who are not. And so definitely encourage people to um, look outside the specific industry because that's where you're going to get different ideas, those different experiences that you may not be thinking about. If if you're all in the same industry, you may be going to the same conferences, you may have the same backgrounds, the same mm-hmm. jobs, the same customers, and you might be coming and thinking of the same things. It's It's really the ability to bring uh, independent voices, questions, and guidance that can really help the company to succeed. Uh, you brought up the term uh, risk mitigation a couple of times. To share with us kind of for the audience, like what does that look like? Sure. I think that's a great question after the last couple of years where we've seen a number of things, right? COVID, of course, which nobody predicted and impacted just about everybody in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the supply chain constraints that came along with it where again, if, if you were looking for anything as a person, but especially also as a business that you needed any supplies, any, any parts, you were impacted. And now as well, all of the cybersecurity concerns that we have. Mm-hmm. And so all of those fall into risk mitigation, as well as things like, you know, what happens if you have a, you're building your, your factory or something, you have an earthquake, you have a hurricane, you know, acts of nature, things like that. So it's really important that companies of all sizes have some risk mitigation uh, plan in place that they've done an analysis, uh, like like I've you know helped guide the, you know low with, um, and they've created a, a risk you know mitigation, and one of the family members is leading. But looking into these different areas and saying, what are my risks? Is there cybersecurity risk? Almost everybody has cybersecurity risks. So how do you address it? And there's a bunch of different ways you can do that, depending on what the, you know, the size of your company and, and how, how exposed you are. Mm-hmm. What is your supply chain risk? What is your act of God, you know, act of nature risk? Really just taking the time as an executive group to think about that and then going and coming up with a plan that fits the size of the business, you know, something that fits a billion dollar business, the committees, the processes and things is not what's going to fit a five or $10 million you know, family owned business. Right. So how can our listeners uh, reach out to you as you're listening? They're thinking, yeah, that kind of check marks everything. I'm kind of struggling or needing to go to the next step right now. Sure. I think the easiest way would just to, to find me on LinkedIn. Again, mm-hmm. that's Stephen Lustig. I guess you'll see the name on the web, on the site there, but Stephen with a V. And uh, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and be happy to, to connect with you there. Great. Thank you. And our next guest, we have Todd Soto with Sutter, McClellan, and Gilbreth. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you. Uh, kind of share with us uh, your story and your background. What got you into insurance? Well, I was a history major, so I didn't have any marketable skills except my ability to communicate effectively. So mm-hmm. uh, my first job out of college was selling auto and homeowners insurance for a, a captive company. And, and uh, I really, uh, really fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's important, especially when we're talking about insurance and trying to break things that are, I imagine, a little complex for the consumer into something that can understand and take away yeah you spend a great deal of your time explaining things to people mm. and i noticed kind of logo it says you know risk managers and it's kind of we're continuing the the whole uh, theme here of risk management what does that mean in insurance world well that's especially important for companies to to take into account specifically with insurance because in this hard market that we're in right now Everything you can do to reduce risk and show the insurance company that you're a good risk and you're a well-run company that does things safely and has controls in place, for example, driver eligibility matrices, training for drivers, cameras on the trucks, dozens of things you can do to reduce the risk of a claim. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to put those programs together and, and, 
and get that in place. Mm-hmm. So uh, as kind of in, on social media or LinkedIn or people talking about returning to work and or rather returning to the office, I mean, how does that impact it, at least in 2023 and the marketplace overall for commercial insurance? Well, it's a hard market for commercial insurance right now. Um, but I'm not sure the, the work from home has had an impact uh, that much on property insurance. Uh, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of empty office buildings sitting around, mm-hmm. but, but that, that hasn't been one of the main factors driving premium. Mm-hmm. So for would it, what, well, looking at your overall portfolio, just for business owners, what is something that they should take in a look into that is a main factor or primary top three factor that does drive premiums? Uh, like I said, you got to have those controls in place. Uh, the, the real trouble right now is commercial property insurance, mm. commercial auto insurance, and cyber insurance. That's really where we're seeing the premium really take off. So mm-hmm. whatever you can do to protect your computer network, for example, uh, will make you eligible for a lot more insurance companies at a much better premium. Uh, whatever you can do to reduce the risk of an auto accident, especially if you have heavy trucks. Mm-hmm. Those are really Georgia, for example, is rated the third worst state in the country for auto insurance claims on the commercial side. Oh, we're only behind New York and California. Well, I, coming in from New York, I can see why New York is up there. Uh, with the drive, we don't really, really drive up there. We, we call it aiming. <laughs> so I'm hoping Georgia is not, not, not in the same uh, bracket there, but we're number three. So it's kind of, Looking a little further ahead and for our listeners, look, okay, so I've got all these factors that could drive my premiums and it's almost like every year the premium just keeps going up. How many brokers or how many companies should a business owner really spend time on to shop around? You want to work with as few brokers as possible in order to blanket the marketplace among the insurance companies that want to write your business. Because at the end of the day, whatever business you're in, there's probably only five or six companies that are going to do a good job and be competitive. So you want to find a broker that has those five or six companies or split it up between two because the real competition happens at the underwriter level. Mm-hmm. The broker's job is to make you look good to the insurance company because the underwriter is the one who provides the quotes and that's where the competition happens. You can send it out to six brokers and let them all shotgun the market, but that's not really an effective strategy to get yourself the best pricing and coverage terms. Mm-hmm. So if I'm understanding you correctly for the commercial uh, or rather the business owner, I mean, kind of for a layperson, they might think, oh, if I go to three, five different brokers, I'm getting more competitive rates. But from what you're telling me is the competition is between you, the broker and all the underwriters out there. At the end of the day, that's really what it is. And you choose your insurance company, Mm. but you also choose your broker. And you want to make sure they're both setting you up for success. Mm. Then kind of uh, rewinding a little back, you mentioned a little uh, on the cyber coverage on things. That's kind of the hot topic nowadays, especially with cybersecurity, uh, with a lot of information just being accessible out there. Um, Share with us kind of what are some myths that some business owner might come to you. Oh yeah, I'm covered. I don't need to do anything. I mean, I know that's, that's probably not the way things run. So explain uh, to our listeners, what is cyber coverage and what does it actually cover? Yeah. The things that really make the headlines are HIPAA breaches of companies that have large, you know, in the medical industry, for example, that have large amounts of personally identifiable data on their patients or clients. Uh, but I've got construction companies and I could tell stories about wire transfers that went bad. Um, the, you know, they use the, they, they get control of the email mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, get into the, the uh, money transfer process and they'll, they'll wire money to, you know, $150,000 to an account that the client thought they were making a payment to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that type of coverage is not expensive uh, because the risk to the insurance company is not in the hundreds of billions of dollars, but it happens. And if you're an electrical contractor making 20 million a year, you know, that $150,000 hit, is going to hurt. Mm-hmm. 
And also, we did touch. So that was a little bit on the cyber coverage、uh, side of things. What are other big factors? Because so we've touched cyber. You touch a little bit on the commercial automobile or trucking. Yeah.、Uh, what would be, I guess, number three?、Uh, the the property insurance is really going up.、Um, yeah, we we've seen. You know, if you've got certain in certain neighborhoods、mm-hmm. uh, where where the crime is bad. The problem is there's been a lot of nuclear verdicts, so could be gang violence, could be a domestic dispute. But someone gets shot in your parking lot,、oh. all of a sudden you're looking at a hundred sixty million dollar lawsuit because the lighting wasn't up to spec. So、uh, these these judgments are being handed out by judges and juries all over the country. I read too much of this stuff, but、mm. it happens all the time. So for our listeners that are just listening for the first time, nuclear verdicts. I'm assuming it's not the one with the mushroom cloud. I forget how they define it. It's anything over a billion dollars. I think it's、mm-hmm. it's one of those things. Okay, it, it, just so, so I'm sure I'm not mishearing you. You said anything over a billion dollars, and that's being reward awarded out. We we are seeing multiple billion dollar judgments that are putting companies out of business, and that's for example, like the the lighting at a, something as mundane as a parking lot. It, yeah, there was a bar that that recently had a, a multi billion dollar. Lawsuit for overserving a patron. Oh, okay. Well, this is something that's that's I did not know, and I thought I was kind of up to snuff on the, on the risk management、uh, side of things. So then, kind of looking at, kind of looking from the ten thousand foot up, like, help us understand、uh, whether it's a business owner or just a regular、uh, person. What is what is total cost of risk? How is it used in insurance? Sure. What we want to do is not just analyze the premium because the premium is just a function of what the insurance company is gambling on in terms of your risk to them.、Mm-hmm. But we want to look at other factors like training for employees,、um, you know, any kind of time that your employees spend in safety training. That's a cost of risk.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the claim that goes bad, that's a cost of risk because you know they, there's a You know there are a lot of factors, including the salary of your safety manager,、mm-hmm. uh, that we want to reduce the total cost of risk because the premium is just one component of that.、Mm-hmm. So as our listeners are coming in, thinking you know they're probably full attention、uh, out of the past ten minutes is now on that nuclear <laughs> verdict side of things. Everything else is just kind of forgot.、Um, share with us kind of a quick tip of okay, so I know this risk is out there. How can I best work to mitigate that? Well, we're a very litigious society, so as soon as you accept that, then you're halfway there. But <laughs> the insurance companies that write your policies、mm-hmm. quite often have all kinds of safety programs that they provide to you for free. It's just a matter of taking the trouble to get toolbox talks from your workers' compensation carrier.、Uh, The especially on the commercial auto side, insurance companies are bending over backwards to get training to employees of companies that they insure.、Mm-hmm. So, I think reaching out to the broker, the broker often has his own resources,、uh, but but also within the insurance company that writes your contract, they're they're more than willing to reduce the risk of them paying out a large claim.、Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. So, for our listeners that, that are kind of wondering or scratching their head or, or maybe sweating on their forehead a, <laughs> a little bit,、uh, how can they best find you, Doug? Well, there's nothing wrong with scaring people into doing the right thing,、mm-hmm. but it's best by phone six seven eight five three three two two one nine. I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and those are the best ways to reach me. Great. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so as you're all kind of here and kind of the theme of with our four amazing guests and kind of their story and what got them started,、uh, whether it's through a life event uh, or uh, understanding,、uh, chasing their passion and helping others,、uh, passing on the torch and、uh, helping them kind of not get into billion-dollar <laughs> nuclear judgments. So, kind of the universal question I would like to bring our guests back. So, the first question、uh, would be, what advice would you give? To young entrepreneurs、uh, that are starting out now in growing their business, that's their first question. And the second question is: When it comes to mitigating risks that you see specifically in your field, what is one takeaway you would like for them to walk away from from this podcast? So again, first question is: What advice 
would you give to young entrepreneurs starting out right now and growing their business? And the second is, when it comes to mitigating risk in your specific field, what advice would you want to give to our listeners that can walk away from this podcast right now? And there comes, of course, the obligatory uh, legalese version or, or portion uh, of the podcast. This show is sponsored and brought to you by yours truly, Anthony Chen, with Lighthouse Financial Network, securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., RAA member FINRA SIPC. RAA is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of RAA. Our main office address is at 575 Broad Hollow Road in Melville, New York, 11747. You can best reach me at 631-465-9090. My extension here is 5075 or simply my email, uh, which is just my full name, Anthony Chen, C-H-E-N at lfnllc.com or also uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, which is just my name, Anthony Chen. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only one uh, affiliated with my name at uh, LFNLC. Now, back to our guest, uh, coming back, Sylvia. Uh, so the two questions, uh, kind of a quick recap is, what advice would you give to young entrepreneurs right now? And uh, what mitigating risk or advice you would like for our listeners to walk away from? So the first question, Anthony, um, I would say as far as being a young entrepreneur that one of the first things I would do is if you have an idea that you're looking to develop, um, that you actually do your research on it. Mm. You um, actually find a mentor who you trust, um, you know, to be able to discuss it with. But also, like I said, you, you know, I hate to go back to Shark Tank, but in a sense, you do have to do your research to see, is this something that, you know, is needed in, in, in the marketplace? Is it needed? Is it something that's not that, you know, like in my case, when I was looking at what I was doing, um, I saw, did the research um, and actually worked with a small business development consultant to discuss, you know, is my service needed? And after, you know, basically pitching my case, mm-hmm to say, yes, this is something that's needed. Um, so before you even start the business to look at that, at your idea, and again, have, have a trusted mentor as well. Like I said, it's the, uh, in, in, in this state, University of Georgia offers uh, free uh, mentorship through the Small Business Development Center that's free to anyone because your taxes pay for it. So that's one way to be able to have um, access to a consultant mm-hmm. to help you look at that idea before you even move forward with it. Great. And uh, second question? Second question. Um, oh, uh, that was regarding to what risk that you see specifically in your field that you would give to our listener that they can walk away and take action on. So my field, patient advocacy, again, um, as a patient advocate, I'm not allowed to diagnose, treat, or provide medical advice. So that is something that, Yes, that I have to be very careful of in how I, you know, word things and present information because, um, you know, someone, depending on what comes out of your mouth, could get you in trouble, mm-hmm. right? So, and of course, I have errors and omissions insurance, but at the same time, you know, that's what in my field we have to focus on um, as well as, you know, um, being very transparent. In other words, I can't make a promise that you're going to, you know, be able to get the diagnosis, but it's my job to do the research and provide you with information and empower you with information so that you can make the best possible decision um, with how you want to proceed with your health care mm-hmm. and, your, and your journey to get a diagnosis. Great. Well, thank you. Sure. All right. And Leroy. Yes, sir. So for a young entrepreneur, um, I think, uh, um, young people today need to have, um, the right expectations. Um, something that I heard, um, early on in my journey of becoming an entrepreneur that I really liked, um, is that, um, generals of the ancient world, um, had a, uh, um, habit of when they would, um, put their soldiers on ships and sell them across the ocean that they would then burn the ships so that, 
they had the option of being successful or dying. And so kind of a um, modern day comparison is don't have the option to quit. That's not an option. And that's very important because if you're doing something of importance, um, it's going to be hard. Um, I tell people that everything we want or need in life is on the other side of at the very least being uncomfortable, but often it's on the other side of hardships and even suffering. Um, you think of something as shallow as getting six pick six pack abs. Um, there's a lot of dieting, um, and a lot of exercise, not comfortable. And it can even be a little bit painful. Um, you go a little bit deeper, um, and you, if you want to have a happy marriage, there's a lot of sacrifice that has to happen there. Um, and if you want kids, there's a heck of a lot of uh, suffering and sacrifice that comes with having kids and being uncomfortable and not always doing what you want to do. I have three daughters, so I know. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're, you're outnumbered there. <laughs> is, is that why yes. you started a fire company? <laughs> To prove my manhood, absolutely. <laughs> no. The uh, um, so and you think of friendships, like if if you don't um, do things that are uncomfortable and go out of your way, it's a shallow friendship and it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what I'm getting to is, if you want to start a business and it be something different, um, there's going to be risk. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be a lot of hard work and there's going to be, there's going to be times when you might be in the fetal position, um, wondering how in the world are, am I going to move forward? Um, and, um, so it's good to have the right expectations that this is going to be hard and you don't have the option to quit if you're really going to go into it. Um, so that's, uh, that's my advice to give for young people for that. As far as mitigating risk, um, I've taken a lot of risks. Um, I started this business 10 years ago and, um, I've had friends joke that my middle name is risk. Um, so you definitely want to take calculated risks. Um, it's not, you don't want to, um, go out and just gamble. You want to, um, you know, a lot of times I go with my instincts, but that's because my instincts have proven themselves out over and over. Um, and it's okay. Um, to um, sometimes make mistakes and even have failures because that's how you learn. And especially in my experience, um, because we were the first in high-end firewood, we've kind of had to learn everything the hard way. So, but you don't want to do a risk that um, puts the business, um, that puts it under or slows down the growth too much. That's kind of um, what my advice would be as far as mitigating risk. Well, thank you. That's uh, I, I hear that a lot. And actually, uh, I like if I may throw out a metaphor. It's when you're going to Vegas, it's not going to the roulette table, but counting cards instead at blackjack, and hope you don't get caught and get because <laughs> the odds are more in your favor. That's calculator risk. Absolutely, mm-hmm. exactly. Right, well, thank you. My pleasure. All right, Stephen. Yeah, I'm going to build on what Sylvia said. I think seeking advice is is really a great idea. Um, as I see in the angel investing we do through Atlanta Technology Angels, we see a lot of people with, with ideas, so with businesses. Uh, sometimes we, we see great founder, we see cool idea, we see the possibility of some traction, but maybe, maybe that person doesn't have all the business knowledge and expertise. You know, can you be a great technical person, entrepreneur, and uh, good at finance, good at business? That's a lot, mm-hmm. right? And understand that there's, people out there that can help you with that. And it comes in, you know, a variety of ways, you know, pay consultants that you may not be able to afford advisors, advisory boards. There's just a bunch of different ways you can get that, but under understand that there are, there are some limitations in what you are excellently skilled at uh, and what your team may be and, and seek that expertise like Sylvia recommended to help you really be successful. Um, regarding the risk, I think the biggest takeaway for risk is, um, you don't, don't, you know, it's not bury our heads in the sand and, and ignore the risk is there and find, you know, find ways to not necessarily eliminate risk. Maybe you can sometimes, but how do you mitigate risk? How do you reduce the impact? How do you take advantage of risks in some cases? 
but really taking the time to look at what that risk is and how you can prepare for it and and be in practice for it. Speci- specifically, you know, if we look at supply chain, which has been an impact for the last couple of years, know where your stuff is coming from and understand if you have multiple sources for it, right? If your only source is something from far away and there's a shipping crisis and there's a hundred ships stuck at the port of Los Angeles, and now you're going to have to wait months for it. What does that do to you and your, your customers and your employees who may not have anything to do waiting for that? So what are the alternate sources, suppliers, um, different businesses, geographies that you can look at to reduce that risk? Great. Well, thank you. All right, Todd, wrapping right. us up. All right. I think that the young entrepreneur should, should know to keep their paperwork in order. Uh, you're running your business. You're probably passionate about it. But really, I've seen so many young entrepreneurs that run into tax problems. They run into cash flow problems. You know, this is a business you, you really have to keep your head above water. And the way you do that is is to make sure the financials uh, are really headed in the right direction. So I think uh, I think that would be the advice I would give because that's that's the problem I see with, with growing companies is, you know, it's you know, you may be at the point where it's time to order, you know, hire part-time office staff uh, or, you know, get a really good CPA. They can do a lot of that back office work for you. They make frac- They have fractional CPAs out there. There's so many resources that don't cost that much to, to keep your financials straight. So that would be my advice. And then on the risk mitigation side, I know kind of teeing up on, <laughs> on the insurance guy here. Well, yeah, but. You know, I, I work with a lot of companies that, you know, whether it's roofers, electricians, plumbers, these are dangerous jobs. And, and we really have to take the time for safety. It's not just about having expensive insurance premiums. It's about making sure people get home to their families at night. So, uh, you know, the, the time you spend on, on safety training and making sure people are doing things the right way is well spent in terms of premium savings, but also, you know, reducing that human cost. Well, thank you. And now for a little closing segment, uh, I've called Anthony's financial take uh, and a little change today is uh, I'll actually be addressing uh, the two questions on the financial side of things. So again, the question, the first one was advice to young entrepreneurs or just doesn't even have to be an entrepreneur. Someone could be uh, working on a nine to five or W2. So the advice would be network, network, network. Doesn't matter if you're just running a business or working uh, at a big law firm or accounting firm or, or wherever, your net worth is your network. So your opportunity for growth and new business or promotions or moving to another company, you have to network. Just because you work nine to five doesn't mean you should be shutting down at five o'clock on a dot. You are your own business. And then lastly, on the question of risk, well, in the financial world, we look a lot at insurance. Uh, we look a lot, a lot at estate planning and succession planning for a business. Uh, that's pretty much the most important foundation of anyone's financial castle. So having those two things, being able to network, to build your net worth, and then having risk mitigation or insurance or legal planning estate or succession planning for one's business is the first step to building one's or securing one's net worth. And that's a little a bit of my take. Thank you for listening. Um, of course, share, subscribe, like the podcast. We appreciate you listeners uh, listening in. Until next time, thank you for listening to Family Business Radio. <laughs>